If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New Miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to Miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a guy that when asked, how do you pay for all these parking tickets, he said, straight cash, homie. He is, of course, the captain. Because homie don't play that. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Diamond Bear Brewing Company's Pale Ale out of Little Rock, Arkansas, garage grade, three and a half bottle caps out of five. You know, I've never been to Little Rock, right? but I was reading this travel magazine recently saying Little Rock is a very, very cool city to travel to, Mm. and if I were there, Captain, I would be drinking some Diamond Bear Pale Ale because this is earthy malts versus bright, beautiful hops that is highly drinkable. They worked on perfecting this recipe for two years, and Diamond Bear was brought to us by these lovely garage guys and girls. First up, we have Dee and Jen, who says, we love you guys. This is from out in the cornfields of Iowa. And a big shout out to Shannon in El Paso, Texas. Next, we have Justine in Upway, Victoria, Australia. And all the way from Sweden, we have Annika. And we also have Maritza from San Fernando, California. And last but not least, a big we like your jib to Marina, over in England. So thanks to everyone who helped to fill up the fridge for this week's show. If you'd like to help us with our next beer run, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And for all old episodes or bonus episodes, check out the website store at truecrimegarage.com or in the iTunes store. All right, Captain, that's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Now, 
19-year-old Melissa Witt disappeared from the Bowling World parking lot on December 1st, 1994. Now, her body was found about six weeks later. On yesterday's show, we were able to go through some of the early leads in the investigation, what they were tracking down, and then the finding of her body. Today, we want to get into some of the suspects. LaDonna had said that there were a lot of the level three sex offenders in the area. Well, there were also some very dangerous people that were probably in that area in December of 1994. And we'll get into that today. So let's dive into the two major suspects. Let's start with Travis Crouch. Um, absolutely. Now, there, there are quite a few suspects. Um, some of them and I can't talk about, but some of the most promising suspects are what I'd like to touch on. And, there, and there's two of those. And, and the first is Travis Dale Crouch. And Travis is um, an Arkansas native. Um, he is currently in prison in Colorado. We can touch touch on why, but he um, he's from the Ozark area. In fact, he lived and worked at a church camp when he was a child um, that was about a mile from where Melissa Witt's body was found. And then later, at the time of her disappearance and death, even though he might try to argue this point, we've been able to prove that he was a carpenter at that same church camp Again, that was about a mile from where her body was found in 1994. So what is Travis in prison for, and how can we connect him to Melissa Witt's murder? Well, <laughs> Travis is cur- currently in prison in Colorado for the rape of a young woman. He met her at a mall. He um, talked with her in the parking lot, was able to, I guess, trick her, um, coerce her, to um, give him a ride somewhere. So they got in the car together. He then forced her to a remote mountaintop out in the middle of nowhere where he made her take off all of her clothes. He um, raped her, and he then um, passed out due to to an overdose of drugs at the time, just a drug-induced type situation. And she knew based on, you know, testimony that she gave to the court, that's how I know this, she knew he was going to kill her. So she fled from the car, completely nude, and ran for her life, and she was able to escape. So he's currently in prison um, in Colorado for that crime. And he did not become uh, of any interest in the Melissa Witt case until several years after um, her body was found. Some people came forward. I can't give a lot of details about who they were for their own protection, but they came forward to law enforcement and said that they had suspected Travis. And um, law enforcement tracked Travis down. We do know that he was in the area, although he claimed that, um, you know, he had left, you know, the Ozark area well before, you know, Melissa was kidnapped and murdered, but that was not the case. We have other witnesses to date that have given statements that he was indeed in town, you know, Travis was um, heavily into drugs and alcohol. He had a history of violence against women, a long history of violence against women. I've done a lot of investigative work into Travis's life, talking to a lot of people that he knew and that he was involved with, and he was notorious for raping women at gunpoint, knife point. Um, he He got away with a lot of different crimes, but just 
you know, overall violence. But, you know, what's interesting about him is that he committed a fairly similar crime. You know, the, the girl was taken to a remote location where she was, you know, raped and she escaped and she was totally nude. And, you know, I shared with you earlier, you know, some of my theory about what could have happened with Melissa. And that kind of lines up. Um, you know, he knew the area very well. He lived and worked a mile away from her body, was, you know, where her body was found. And then, you know, we were later able to uncover from, you know, different witnesses that came forward that he actually participated in some illegal activities in that very area where Melissa's body was found. Now, you said that he's committed some illegal activity in that area where her body was found, but I'm guessing with his well-known drug use Mm -hmm. that we're talking about dealing drugs and purchasing drugs in that area. You're correct. Um, not only were there drug dealings, but he actually grew marijuana plants near that very rock where Melissa's body was found. So, you know, that area meant something to him, and he had a violent history, a violent history against women. He lied originally about his whereabouts um, when Melissa went missing and um, was murdered. So, yeah, it, he's he's definitely... A suspect that you know, law enforcement cannot rule him out. He does not cooperate. He hasn't cooperated with our team. You know, we've reached out to family and friends of his, and so we've done a lot of work in looking at Travis Crouch, and he 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 will remain a number one suspect until he either, you know, decides to cooperate or we can find the evidence to prove that. He did indeed kill Melissa Witt. So if Travis did this, this would be a stranger on stranger type crime? You know, quite possibly. I mean, he was from that area. Um, he was living in that area. It's possible that, you know, he he had ran into her at the mall. You know, just to put it in even more context, when he, um, you know, met the girl that he raped on that remote mountaintop in Colorado, he met her at a mall. And the day Melissa went, went missing, she had lunch at the local mall with her friend. We know that the malls were one of Travis's favorite spots. I think it's feasible to think that maybe he ran across Melissa that day. Maybe they had a conversation. Maybe he followed her. That's that's completely plausible thing that could have happened. Okay, time out here, Captain, because LaDonna presents a an interesting observation here that potentially Travis could have been watching at the mall yeah and spotted melissa there i mean what better place if if you have if you're a predator and you have a type that you're you're hunting yeah um what better place to go to if you're looking for someone you know 18 19 year old 20 year old attractive young woman you go to the you go to the mall and maybe not so much even just a type but this is this is your mo you know, we've seen this multiple times in, in serial killers or serial rapists where they kind of come up with a plan. Uh, their job then becomes to execute that plan over and over and to get better at it. And we already know that he likes to uh, pick up his prey from the mall. And it's pretty simple, too, because if you if you go to the mall, mm-hmm. you find somebody that you like, you follow them. If they end up in a situation where they could be easily compromised. Right. You abduct them and you've a- achieved your mission. Right. If not, if that situation never arises, you just go back to the mall the next week and repeat. And this is something that if this was Travis, 
And if this is his MO, you know, this wasn't the first day that he went to the mall and this happened. This is something he probably did time and time again until he found a person that that he thought he could easily overcome. Well, and think about how many times we see it with, with other killers again, where it's you're developing. So, you know, somebody like um, uh, Ted Bundy will uh, be a peeping Tom first, you know, and so they're developing. So he could have just been going to the mall for a while, you know, just as a, let's say as a kid. And, and he just liked going there and following a girl around. And that became, okay, now I want to follow her outside of the mall. Now, you know what I mean? Uh, and it seems like he also needed to be on drugs during this time. So um, you kind of see that too with somebody like Dahmer, for example. Yeah. Um, needed to be or wanted to be. Right, right. Um, I guess there could be a debate there. The situation though for me would be if this was Travis and if – where he first encountered Melissa was in fact the mall. Mm-hmm. We have to keep in mind that, that he would have been not easily detected because we don't see any scenario where Melissa appears to be on guard for the rest of the day. She was not at the mall alone, you know, and mm-hmm. we we've interviewed that person. Investigators have interviewed that person later. They don't give any clues, any leads as to that aspect. Um, so this person would have been, where Travis seems to have been very out of control in his attack in Colorado, and you're you're right, that's because of the drug use. Mm-hmm. Um, whoever, if this were was his mo, and he was at the mall that day, he was in control at that time. Um, he he would not have stood out for any reason. He necessarily didn't actually have to meet her. You know, it could have just been he. She caught his eye, and he just kind of followed her at a distance. Okay, LaDonna, that's the thing that you have to ask yourself. Is this just pure coincidence mm-hmm. that this guy that has picked up, followed a girl from a mall before, and our victim here, Melissa, happened to be at the mall earlier that day. Right. He also has ties to the location where her body is eventually found. The big question well, well, I have it- is, you know, we know he's capable of rape because that's what he's been convicted of in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I need to be convinced of is... How are why are we so convinced he's capable of murder? Because it's alleged that he's committed multiple rapes at gunpoint before. What made that attack in Colorado different from the previous attacks? Yeah, and how do we know that he was going to kill his victim in Colorado? Well, I mean, that's based on her testimony. So the only reason she got away from him is because he was also drinking and doing drugs while he held her in this car. I mean, he was raping her repeatedly. It was a violent attack, but he passed out. And she was so certain that he was going to kill her when he woke up that instead of trying to put her clothes on or even take them with her, she took off completely nude. She knew she couldn't waste any time to get away from him. That's her testimony. She escaped with her life. She was certain he was going to kill her. And the attack was just so brutal and violent. And as far as the other rapes, now, those are things that he was never charged for. Now, these are these are rapes that occurred um, to women who did not come forward to law enforcement for a variety of reasons. Perhaps, um, you know, some examples. And I, I'm, I'm talking in a little bit vaguer terms because some of these women that I've been in touch with, I need to protect them because he will be paroled 
at some point, and I want to be certain that if Travis Crouch hears this, that he he isn't able to go after the particular people that I have spoken to. But, you know, these were women that were involved in some things that were – less than desirable doesn't mean that they deserve what happened to them and that's not what i'm implying but those were their words that's what they told me and that's why they didn't go to law enforcement and you know he um travis you know he being travis was involved in a biker gang and some other activities that were just very violent i mean he tried to kill a man in one state and served some time there you know he he's been arrested pretty much in every state that he's ever been in south carolina louisiana um, Colorado, Arkansas, for, you know, anything from theft to trying to burn things down to, you know, stabbing people. But he, you know, Travis has been described as someone that has no care at all for life. It, it doesn't matter to him. I mean, he's literally walked up to people and just, and stabbed them in a bar. He, he just, he doesn't care. Um, you know, he wasn't a half bad looking guy all those years ago. I mean, I've said, seen some photos of him so it's easy for me to believe that a young girl might talk to him at first and be flattered and not realize you know what they were dealing with but he's he's a dangerous predator and i hope that he does not get paroled but it's looking like um parole is quite possible for him in about eight years do we have any eyewitnesses that would put travis in the area back in december of 1994 um we do we have people that that continue to say that he was in the area we can't place where he was for sure um we know that he was arrested in in new orleans on new year's eve or day i'm not really sure how that worked out if it happened at midnight or 1201 a.m you know where that but but that's the next arrest that he had but you know we we have pretty reliable sources that have come forward all these years later that say oh no you know travis was here and they believe that um they that he took off to Louisiana shortly after um, the body was found because he was afraid he was going to be blamed is is what some of these sources have told us. But as far as you know, being able to definitely prove that you know beyond a, a reasonable doubt, no, we can't. But you know, enough people have come forward to kind of um, paint a picture for us that. We're very confident that Travis was here. We're very confident that he has people that were close to him, you know, relatives that have um, not told the truth because they want to protect Travis. And, you know, there's only one reason why he would lie and say, no, I, I was, I'd already taken off to Louisiana, but he was really here because he was possibly involved in this crime. He has something to hide. For sure, but he he has not responded to any of my requests for an interview, and he has not responded to any of my letters in prison. I have corresponded with um, his mother and a sister of his, but you know we've not had any real cooperation. So you say that you know that Travis was arrested in Louisiana on either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, but she wasn't found until the thirteenth. Fill me in here. Are we saying that that after he was arrested that he was released and potentially came back to Arkansas? He was released after that arrest, and he started traveling, we believe, back through this area as he made his way to to meet with some friends to possibly go on to his next adventure. And I'm not sure if he went to South Carolina first or he went straight to Colorado. It's really difficult to track his movements because you have to remember it's two decades later. 
and you're dealing with people that don't really want to cooperate. So um, he wasn't held very long in Louisiana, maybe a day for that arrest, from what I recall. So, you know, it doesn't mean that he came back and he was the one that moved the body. It's possible, well, let's think about this, that someone that was close to him knew that he had killed Melissa Witt, and perhaps they were overcome with guilt, and they moved the body. I mean, any anything like that is possible. You know, I, I can't say for sure, and I can't say for sure that Travis Crouch killed Melissa Witt, but he's an awfully good suspect that has lied repeatedly, has a violent history, and refuses to cooperate. So, I mean, it seems to me that he would want to help rule himself out, but he has no desire to do that. Well, with this drug use, too, I mean, you, you have to wonder if he even knows that he did the crime. Possible. Possible. My guess would be if he spotted her at the mall, he has some good recollection of what took place leading up to getting her in his vehicle. Meaning he was probably sober at some point. Yeah. And he would recognize her face on the the news. Right. But I guess the thought here is that maybe what's more likely is that because of his intense drug use day mm. after day and alcohol use and a combination of both that he probably got so intoxicated or high one day that he told somebody mm-hmm. either where Melissa was, where her body was or what he had done. Yes. That's my thought. Cause he was, he was heavily into drugs, heavily into drugs. The only thing that kept him from, from remaining that kind of a drug addict is this, this stint that he's doing in prison for the rape of that girl in Colorado. I mean, Travis, Travis was just walking chaos. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today.
Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code TrueCrimeGarage50 at factormeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, me mateys. Before we get back to LaDonna with her second suspect in the Melissa Witt murder case, the first suspect, Travis Crouch, it seems to me that the story, the theory would be this, mm-hmm. that he would have gone to the mall looking for a potential victim that day, 
came across Melissa, followed her for a portion of that day until he saw his opportunity with her getting out of her vehicle in the in the parking lot at the bowling alley. That's a pretty big time gap, too. Approaches her. As the LaDonna said that this Travis may be an attractive young man that she may not have run off screaming from immediately. Right. He attacks her, forces her into his vehicle, dumps her in a location, takes her to a location that he knows well, murders her there, leaves the body there. And then at some point in some kind of uh, stupor, some some intoxicated stupor, he Mm -hmm. tells somebody that he knows someone close to him either where she's located or what he has done. Yeah, so either he moves the body or somebody that he told possibly moves the body. Yeah, um, potentially he could have moved the body because he told somebody where it was, but you would think that if if the whole point was concealing the body, you would move it to a location that would conceal it further rather than putting it in a place where it would be found. Right, but I think the theory on this is that, uh, well, in his drunken stupor or drug state maybe he did this and didn't mean to didn't mean to bring her out into the open or again if he told somebody that their guilt got to him and figured hey if i move the body somebody will find it but i'm with Ladonna. i think there's no coincidence that there happens to be this phone call where somebody seems to be describing melissa witt mm-hmm. and then the next day the body's found i don't think that's any coincidence at all well, let's get into the second suspect. Well, you know, Larry Swearingen um, was arrested in 1999 um, for the murder of Melissa Trotter. Melissa Trotter was a 19-year-old community college student in Montgomery County, Texas. She met Larry Swearingen by chance in a, you know, it's like a convenience store slash pizza parlor type parking area where their conversation um, was videotaped by a security camera. They talked for two hours on December 6th in this parking lot, just in this little area on the outskirts of Lake Conroe in Texas. Okay, so we know that he came across her. We know he was very intrigued by Melissa Trotter. And according to testimony in, in the Melissa Trotter murder trial, he went back to work the next day and told some of his fellow electricians that he'd met this really cute girl and that she was going to meet him for lunch that day. Well, Melissa Trotter stood him up, didn't show up for lunch, and these same witnesses told the court in the murder trial that um, when she stood him up that he became very angry, eerily angry. So that was the seventh. We know that witnesses saw Larry Swearingen on the campus of the community college in Montgomery County, Texas, on December 8th, that he sat and talked with Melissa, and that they left together. They got in his vehicle. Melissa Trotter was never seen again, never seen again. She was found roughly, you know, 30, 40 days later in the Sam Houston National Forest, and she had been strangled. She had been um, sexually assaulted and strangled. How long until they make an arrest on Larry Swearingen? You know, he he was arrested fairly quickly. You know, they were able to determine really quickly that he knew Melissa Trotter. They were able to pull that um, security camera footage. They were able to get, you know, some information about the things that he was saying about 
Melissa Trotter, and they were really able to tie the pieces together pretty quickly. His wife at the time would later testify that when she came home to their trailer that evening, that the trailer was in a disarray. You know, he had brought Melissa Trotter back to the trailer. That's where it's believed that she most likely spurned his sexual advances, and he then raped her and strangled her with a section of his wife's pantyhose and then loaded her up and dumped her body in the Sam Houston National Forest. Of course, he denies it. What evidence do we have against Larry Swearingen in this case? And we know that he has disputed that he was at work at the time that Melissa Trotter disappeared. Well, um, there's a lot of evidence. There's a, it's what's described as a mountain of evidence against Larry Swearingen, and I would agree with that as I have the court transcripts, the testimony against Larry Swearingen in the Melissa Trotter trial. So I've taken about a year and a half to do a case study on Larry Swearingen. He killed Melissa Trotter, there's no doubt. But as far as evidence, there was hair and fiber evidence found in his truck that belonged to Melissa Trotter. There was, you know, fiber evidence fiber evidence on her body that belonged to Larry Swearingen. Um, you know, he had a cell phone at the time and it pinged right around the area where um, he would have to, had to have driven through to dump her body in the Sam Houston National Forest. You know, her pack of cigarettes were left behind in the trailer that um, lived where Larry Swearingen lived. Later, they were able to find the other section of pantyhose that was used. You know, he tore it apart to strangle Melissa in a trash can at Larry Swearingen's house. Paperwork that belonged to Melissa Trotter um, was found all in this area near where Larry Swearingen's family lived. It was all found strung, strung out across the street. So it's almost like it had been blown out of a trash can or some kind of, some kind of area where um, Larry had hidden it. So that's just a little bit of the evidence that is against Larry Swearingen. Um, of course, he and his defense team try to paint a picture that he had been at work, that he had picked his grandmother up, that, you know, he and Melissa Trotter were just great friends. But you have to keep in mind, he had only met Melissa Trotter two days prior. There wasn't a great friendship with Melissa Trotter. You know, there are a lot of, of interviews with Larry Swearingen out there um, in different forms of media about this case. And if you put them all together, he never tells the same story um, about Melissa Trotter. It always changes. You know, one, one story is that they had a consensual sexual relationship for weeks. Well, that's not possible. He only knew her for two days. You know, that they were great friends and they spent a lot of time together. Well, that's not true. He only knew her for two days and she stood him up the next day after they met. I mean, it's it's a lot of, um, you know, smoke and mirrors with Larry Swearingen and his defense team to try to create doubt in the minds of the general public that he did not kill Melissa Trotter. But the, the fact is, is he did kill Melissa Trotter. There's just no two ways about it. Were you able to speak with his ex-wife? He has many ex-wives, and I have spoken to two of them. They um, have been very, very cooperative with me, these two particularly, and I, I'd prefer not to use their names, but they, these two wives have, have shared with me how Larry tried to strangle both of them in anger, that he was violent, he was volatile, and they firmly believe that he killed not only Melissa Trotter, but that he also killed Melissa Witt, and they believe that he has killed other women. And I, I'm in agreement. I believe that Larry Swearingen is a serial killer. 
Before we get into that, let's get into Larry's background. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like he had traveled around a lot. He was some kind of contractor or an electrician. Is that correct? You're correct. He um, traveled as a journeyman electrician. He most often traveled with his stepfather, Joe Martinez. And um, they traveled all across the eastern United States, all kinds of areas, you know, He's being looked at by law enforcement in many different locations where there were young women found strangled. He's a prime suspect in, in more than just these two cases. But what about his background? He had been in a lot of trouble in school. He had broken into um, you know, his own high school and stolen some things. He, he was in trouble quite a bit for stealing cars, you know, breaking and entering into buildings, you know, fighting, just a variety of things. I mean, just... A career criminal is how I would describe Larry Swearingen. The funny thing here, Captain, when we spoke with LaDonna and Mm -hmm. we got into all this conversation about Larry Swearingen being a a key individual to look at as a suspect in the Melissa Witt murder and abduction, the funny thing was we were speaking with her on the date that Larry Swearingen was supposed to have been executed. We always have weird serendipitous things happen like that. Yeah, he was supposed to have been executed on November 16th. And we actually, it was actually pushed back before we had the conversation with her. Um, However, it was just kind of ironic that we were speaking with her about him on the very day that he was supposed to have been executed. So let's listen in as we get some better information on to why are they pushing back his execution. They continue to do that. In the beginning, they were pushing it back maybe a year, and then they shortened it to the point where they're pushing it back just a couple of months. Mm -hmm. If we continue what they've been doing, he was supposed to be executed in September of this year, then later in November. So I'm guessing maybe they'll finally kill this guy in January or February of next year. But let's listen into why the holdup. Is it because he's being looked at as a suspect in other cases other murder cases mm-hmm. or is it just simply the appeals process it ha- so the hold up in his execution it has nothing to do with the other cases so i will say this is that um larry swearingen was able to luck into a phenomenal defense team i mean he has the innocence project backing him now in my opinion and it's my opinion only the Innocence Project took him on because they wanted to see some of the laws change in Texas. And that did happen because they took on his case, right? You know, some the way they handled DNA in cases. So that was a win for them. But they've worked very hard to um, create this doubt that Larry Swearingen is guilty. And it's a frustrating point for me personally. Because, you know, as I mentioned, there is a mountain of evidence that he killed Melissa Trotter. And it's almost offensive to me that anyone would go to these lengths to defend this man. The crux of their argument is this. They wanted additional DNA testing. And that was part of the law change that they had made. It just didn't apply to Larry Swearingen's case. But they wanted additional DNA testing um, on some things that were found on uh, Melissa Trotter's body, uh, evidence under her fingernails and I think evidence on the pantyhose and some things like that. But let me explain to you why that is absolutely asinine. You know, the jury was presented with this information. The jury knew going in to this case that there was a full DNA profile 
of an of a uh, an unknown male found under Melissa Trotter's fingernails. So they knew that the the jury saw that. They also knew that there was a full DNA profile found on some other evidence. And you know, and there as there would be, the pantyhose that he used to strangle Melissa Trotter belonged to his wife. Okay, so there was an explanation for these things. So the jury knew all this and they convicted him anyway because of all of the other evidence. But, you know, of course Melissa Trotter had another DNA profile under her fingernails. She had been at school that day. She had done all kinds of things the day before. I mean, she didn't meet up with Larry until noon that day. It's absolutely feasible that there would be another DNA profile. I would be surprised if there wouldn't be. But, you know, that has just been the crux of their argument. And they just hammer that, hammer that home in the media. If I sound like I'm frustrated about it, I am, because a 19-year-old girl was killed. And they're dismissing the mountain of evidence because they want to make an argument on something that the jury already looked at and said, okay, I understand that. It's been explained. We still believe that he killed Melissa Trotter based on all these other things. But, you know, so Larry has built a career on death row of being able to weasel out of these executions because they keep filing motions that keep getting struck down by the higher courts. But this latest situation with the the delay of his execution had had to do with two different things. One being that um Unfortunately, the paperwork was filed incorrectly in Texas with the wrong office. And that's just an unfortunate event that happened. So that delayed his execution. And then you've got to couple that with this this greatest and latest scandal of Larry Swearingen, where he has been working with another death row inmate for who knows how long and had talked this death rower into admitting at the midnight hour before his own execution that he was the one that had killed Melissa Trotter. Fortunately, this guy, and his name is Anthony Shore, had some conscience before it all went down, and he admitted to officials what was happening. And so that delayed Anthony Shore's execution, but it's also then created this huge media circus around Larry Swearingen. I mean, it's just one more way for Larry to delay his execution and in his mind to try to create some kind of doubt where there is no doubt. He killed Melissa Trotter. So basically, Larry got this other gigantic pile of dog dookie to confess to the murder of Melissa Trotter. And that actually postponed both of their executions. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) You know, the the justice system should go, hey, we see what's going on here, right? Mm -hmm. It should be pretty simple. Well, I mean, you know, Anthony Shore was known as Houston's tourniquet killer. So he killed uh, many girls in the same style and fashion as of Melissa Trotter or Melissa Witt. You know, they they were strangled. But so he's also believed to have... um, Maybe some sort of um, head trauma. I, I don't know a lot about Anthony Shore, but I do know this. I do know that Larry has been working that angle for many, many years because he's got some people that have been blogging for years about um, 
how there's no way possible that it was Larry Swearington that killed Melissa Trotter, and you know they put out the theory that it was Anthony Shore. So this has been something that he's planning for a very long time. But Anthony, um, you know, has admitted to the things that he has done, and I think that he just. He just got suckered by another death row inmate. I think that's what happened. I think that, you know, maybe there was a part of him that believed, you know, Larry, that he didn't kill Melissa Trotter, so he was willing to take that rap for him. I I don't know what kind of deal that they cut. I really don't. But, you know, Larry Swearingen is very manipulative. He's described as someone who's very charming, and he's a liar. And I think that Anthony fell for that. You know, I don't know Anthony Shore personally, but I would I would think that maybe maybe he just he had a bout of conscience right before and couldn't follow through with it. Maybe something told him that that was wrong. That if he went through with this, they would be letting a killer out on the street because if they did, Larry will just kill again. There's no doubt in my mind about that. It's hard to understand or to know what kind of relationship those two men have. I mean, they're both on death row because they killed young girls. So, you know, the caliber of these people that we're talking about is not the greatest. So let's get into the connection between Larry Swearingen and our victim, Melissa Witt. I believe the way that the story goes is that he was ultimately connected to this case, this cold case, because of a piece of paper or some type of note that was found in his jail cell. You're correct. What happened is that authorities in Texas contacted the detective at the time, which is Detective Ryder, in Fort Smith and said, I don't know if you're aware of who Larry Swearingen is, but we found a notebook in a cell turnover, and it had your name, um, Detective J.C. Ryder, and it had Melissa Witt's name, and it had December 1st, 1994 written down. And that's really how Larry Swearingen came to the forefront of the minds of of Fort Smith police, and that's when they started looking into Larry Swearingen, and that's when it really started becoming apparent that it's quite possible that he killed Melissa Witt, that he could be involved, and that he had to be looked at closer. All right, so with the Melissa Witt case, Larry would have had to been working in the area or had family in this area? Well, he does have family in Arkansas. Um, they live in Clinton, Arkansas, which is, you know, roughly a couple hours away from Fort Smith. Um, we do know that he was there in Clinton, Arkansas, just days before Melissa Witt was killed because law enforcement was able to track down a receipt where he bought a car part in Clinton, Arkansas. So we know it was in the area. I know I can't put him back in Texas until mid-December, late December. So he had plenty of time to kill Melissa Witt. I believe it's quite possible that he was working in the area. And law enforcement did look at that angle. However, at the time, and there was so little to go on, they didn't know that he was just a journeyman electrician. They didn't realize that he would be working under the license of Joe Martinez. So when they did their search on anybody that had filled out a license or was working in you know, the greater Fort Smith area, they looked under the name Larry Swearingen. And so we're trying to recreate that search now, two decades later. It's really difficult if the records even exist. But we know he was here. We've got an, uh, an ex-wife that can place him here. Uh, and she's pretty confident that he killed Melissa Witt. But I, I, we have to have more than that before he could even be charged. And that's something that we're looking at. We've 
been in touch with a retired detective, um, one of the original detectives in the Trotter case, who tells us that they did find a receipt on Swearingen that 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 was in the from the Fort Smith area in December of '94, that first week of December of '94, and they they assure me they believe that he killed Melissa Witt. So I'm trying desperately to find that receipt. Are you able to say what one of the ex-wives said to you regarding why she firmly believes that Larry killed Melissa Witt? Um, she has the suspicion for a couple of different reasons. And, and one is that he um, was very abusive to her and he had actually violently raped her, choked her until she blacked out and dumped her in the woods. He thought she was dead. And so, you know, in her mind, this is something he's very capable of doing. But also, she, at the time that they were together, she found quite a few women's IDs on him. And he couldn't explain it. He took them away from her, and he dumped them in the woods. Now, does she remember if one of those belonged to Melissa Witt? No. But that, that really set off my radar. Have you been able to talk with Larry? I have corresponded with Larry Swearingen several times. Um, he's not a fan of LaDonna Humphrey, and I'm not a fan of Larry. And he has actually had his legal team serve me with, I think I'm at my fourth cease and desist, refuses to cooperate, you know, will not talk about Melissa Witt at all, not at all, denies that he killed Melissa Trotter. And in my last correspondence with him, you know, I just pointed out, hey, you have family in Arkansas. When they were interviewed, they said that you used to camp and, and hike in that very area where Melissa's body was found. Is that true? You know, he doesn't respond. You know, I reminded both girls were named Melissa. They were the same age, same kind of physical appearance. You know, both of their bodies were dumped in a national forest 50 miles from the site of the abduction. Both girls were abducted in the same week, exactly four years apart. If that doesn't you know, ring a bell of a serial killer. I don't know what does. But what, you know, both girls were strangled. And then, and, and this is the, the clincher for me. Melissa Witt had a watch stolen from her. Her murderer stole it. It was a Mickey Mouse watch. Melissa Trotter's watch was stolen from her. It was a Mickey Mouse watch. Her killer stole it. That was my favorite part of the entire interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, right there, and I'll tell you why. Because you have, a, you have a Mickey Mouse watch? If uh, if anybody followed my good instruction many, many months ago and picked up one of our recommended reading books, this was the uh, called A Good Marriage by Stephen King. It's not a true story. It's a fictional story. Nobody listens to you. If anybody picked that up, they know why that I found that part so interesting. When, when she says, mm-hmm. and this is all hearsay, by the way, we have to throw that in there because it's, it's a telling from one person to another than to us. We don't know if this is in fact true. Hearsay, smear say. The portion where she said that the wife, one of his ex-wives of Larry, found several driver's license mm-hmm. in their home from young women. And when confronted about it, he has no answer. He confiscates them. And then he supposedly dumps them or, or discards of them in the woods somewhere. Right. That's exactly what happened in a good marriage. The, yeah. the husband is away on work. She's looking, the wife is looking for something in the garage and she comes across a little hidey hole and inside there's several driver's license mm-hmm. of girls that had gone missing 
in the surrounding states. And it's exactly like a case that we covered. Which one? It happened in an attic, not the garage, and a dark past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. In the attic, they Felix Vale case. The yeah, and the I think the people that were running off of him, I believe, found the box. Yeah, they found some some old items of one of his very likely victims. The thing that we should we should you know I want to mention this because we are talking about Stephen King. We're talking about storytellers. You know the the Mickey Mouse watch. The two victims that happen to be named Melissa, Mm -hmm. they're the same age. They're abducted in the same week. Four years apart. Some of that seems a little Mm storyteller-ish. You know, it seems a little icing on the cake. I don't know that that a killer that's that's attacking two women that he would have, you know, there's a very likely situation that if Larry did kill both of these Melissas, Mm -hmm. that he likely would not have known that's not why he killed them. Right. It's not like he's driving around looking for the next Melissa. I agree with you, but we do have um, we do have evidence that he met the first Melissa. If he met Melissa with the second Melissa, the, right. it's a tricky story because he was convicted of of Melissa Trotter's case, mm-hmm. but that was actually after uh, Melissa Witz. Right. So we have evidence that he met Melissa trouter beforehand mm-hmm. so i'm guessing that if if this is a victim you know his mo would kind of suggest that he would have met melissa wit prior to the the attack possibly could have had some kind of interaction with her in advance but i think the thing that we're kind of losing track of here mm-hmm. in this story is what really is tying larry swearingen to this case keep in mind her name is found written. Melissa Witt's name is found written in a notebook of his, yeah. as well as you and I were talking about this, as well as the detective. Yeah, slow down a little bit. So he's he's in a different state. He's in another state. This is like a decade later. Death row. Yeah. And they find, I mean, they find her name, and not just her name, but the detective's name. I mean, I just keep going back to the fact that there's no reason for him to have her name written on any of his property at all. Yeah, it's pretty um that's pretty mind-blowing. So fill us in on the current state of Melissa Witt's case. You know, the case is more active now than it has been in years. And um you know, we work daily with law enforcement. And you know, I just talked to the t- you know, the detective this morning and you know, they allow us our team to run a tip line and that tip line is pretty active, and then we share that information on immediately with law enforcement. And, you know, they're they're following up on tips all the time, and I do believe it's just a matter of time. Right now, my focus is, excuse me, you know, solely on trying to get Larry Swearingen ruled in or ruled out before he's executed. Once he's executed, we may never know. All right. And so that documentary uh, might come out this spring, but they're still negotiating that. So once we know something, we'll let you know. Well, and if you want to find out the release date, they will be making updates regarding that on the website, which is whokilledmissywit.com or their Facebook page, Who Killed Missy Wit. The thing that I'm interested in seeing here, Captain, is what more information can we find out in the documentary? Because I think that even 
even though as forthcoming as LaDonna was, and I so appreciate her time with us and her keeping her efforts and all of her energy working on this cold case, Mm -hmm. because I don't know if there's that everybody picked up on this, but during the course of that interview, one thing that we learned is that unfortunately both Melissa Witt's parents have passed away since she was killed. So they didn't get to see justice for their daughter. And sometimes you wonder, you know, we cover a lot of these old cold cases. Sometimes you wonder that when the relatives of these people start to pass away and once they start to fade into memory, does the case itself fall fade into memory as well? Is there anybody out there working the case? Does anybody still care? And it's great to see somebody like LaDonna focusing her efforts on this old cold case, working on a documentary. We've seen movement on cases because of documentaries and because of podcasts. So it's very interesting to see what's there. I think I was trying to read between the lines there. I think there's some more information that that will be released when that documentary comes out. And I also want to include if anybody wants to has heard this case and has some information that they can offer, you can submit tips at the who killed Missy website. There's instructions there on how to do so. Or there's a phone number that you can call to submit a tip, and that's 479-221-9393. All right. Do we have any recommended reading for the week? We do. This week we're recommending Convenient Suspect. And the strange thing here, little coincidence, tie into what we covered this week and last week. It just so happened we had two cases back-to-back. We didn't plan this. That happened to take place in December of 1994. We wanted to cover those. Well, we did with Dewan Sims last week and the Melissa Witt this week. Well, that inspired me to come up with this recommended reading. It's from a cold case from December back in 1994 that took place in Pennsylvania. And I shouldn't say a cold case because this one has been technically solved as far as the books are concerned, but you can tell by the title, Convenient Suspect, there's a lot of people out there that wonder if they have the right suspect. So if you're interested in this, pick up Convenient Suspect, a double murder, a flawed investigation in the railroading of an innocent woman. And this is by Tammy Mall. And you can find all of our recommended reading on our website, truecrimegarage.com, and just click on the recommended page. Yeah, and also at truecrimegarage.com, we have our blog there as well as our store page. So check all of that good stuff out. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling a friend. Yeah, thanks for sharing on social media. Be good, be kind, and don't litter. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 